I'm Elliot Reeves, this is David McRae, and you're watching The Elliot Reeves Show. David, thank you so much for coming. It's absolutely brilliant to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I love this little <laughs> setup that we've got here, I'm glad and you I'm like ready it. to go. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, we had a, a catch-up quite recently. I've actually sort of seen or, or sort of followed you in some sense for, for a, a reasonable amount of time, actually. Um, and yeah, I, I genuinely love the work that you do. I think it's absolutely brilliant, and I'm really interested to kind of dig into it a little bit more, how, how you became you. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So if we were to go back to the, you know, your early years, your your childhood and whatnot, I mean, you want to set the scene and just give us a, an insight? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is this is a great one. So people always ask me about the accent. They're okay. like, David, where on God's earth are you from? Are you from England? Are you from Canada? Are you from Northern England? Like, where, like, where are you? So yeah. there's a story behind the accent. And normally I have to give people a very abridged version okay. of the story. But today I can go into a little bit Absolutely. more detail, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. nice. Yeah. So I was born in Aberdeen Hospital. My dad is Scottish. My mum's English. So I'm a half-blood. I say I'm a half-blood like Harry Potter yeah, or yeah, yeah. Voldemort, depending <laughs> which way you want to look at it. So I'm half Scottish, half English through uh, my parents. I was raised in Aberdeenshire, went to school in Aberdeenshire. Basically... I've lived in Scotland my whole life, so I should really sound a lot more Scottish than I do. <laughs> There's a couple of mitigating factors in the mix. So number one, of course, my mum is English, so I've got some of her sort of influence. And she used to read to me from a very early age. So, And there's obviously the kind of the maternal link as well. So a lot of my early influence linguistically was mm -hmm. through my mum. So I've picked up kind of some of her accent in that, I think. And another factor was the school that I went to it was a very kind of middle-class affluent school uh, where lots of children of parents who worked in the oil industry went. So in the oil industry, for those of you who don't know, Aberdeen's got a very big oil and gas industry. It's the oil capital of Europe. And uh, so you get people who've moved from the States, they've moved from the Middle East, they've moved from Scandinavia, Australia, all over the world, people have moved to work in the oil and gas industry. So at my school, you had this kind of international hybrid english accent which was an amalgamation of all these kind of different accents <laughs> that doesn't really sound like anything when you stick it all together yeah. was it robert gordon's or was it it was Bankery academy right okay. um, but robert gordon's is a very similar school yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. where you get a lot of people kind of um children of oil parents uh, yeah, children of yeah. oil families um so it's weird you go to where i was brought up and kind of one half of the population is very native Scottish. In fact, a lot of them speak Doric, which is a complete different language in oh, itself. Wow. It's like um, rural Scottish, which is very difficult to understand. I lived there for my childhood. And I still can't understand if somebody's speaking Doric. <laughs> so you get people who are sort of very indigenously Scottish. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of get the other half, which is just all immigrants, basically. <laughs> They've all moved from somewhere yeah, else yeah. To, to work in the oil industry. Um, so I'm not actually... I'm not, you know, my parents are both UK nationals and, you know, my dad was born and raised in Aberdeen. My mum was born and raised in London. So I'm not completely in that kind of mold and my parents didn't work in the oil industry. But because a lot of the people who I was hanging around with and kind of my childhood friends uh, were in that environment, 
It's funny that most of us all speak kind of like this, this weird sort of neutral English accent that, that doesn't really sound yeah. like anything. Um, so that's a little bit of the backstory. That's kind of my you very uh, my very early beginnings, and it allows me to give the full backstory to the accent, which is one of the first things people ask me. People ask, you know, like, oh, so when did you move up to Scotland? And I was like, uh, my whole life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the education system and your career aspirations. I mean, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So my first aspiration, uh, for those of you who are who are watching and listening, you might remember when you were at school, the teachers would ask you what you want to be when you grow up. <laughs> yeah. And when you're five or six years old, you give the most <laughs> dumb, ridiculous answers. You say, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a rally driver. <laughs> I want to be a cowboy. I want to be a princess. Because when you're that age, you don't know what a real job is. Yeah. You don't know that, oh, I can be a project manager. <laughs> I can be, be a fund a, administrator. Yeah, <laughs> I could be a civil engineer. You don't know anything about real jobs. You just know about the jobs that, or the, the jobs yeah, in air yeah. quotes that you see in films or you read in books. And, cartoons. Um, and cartoons, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so when I was that age and everyone around me is saying they want to be astronauts and cowboys and, and all these kind of things, I wanted to be an author. I was fascinated with stories i've i've kind of hinted already so far that my mom used to speak to me a lot when i was very young and she used to read to me from a very young age and i very quickly picked up the ability to read myself i was actually reading books even before i could properly speak um, wow. so i was reading before i was speaking and even when i played and i often played on my own i was a little bit of a, a loner at that age in in many respects and i'd create all these alternate worlds and universes and i'll just kind of lose myself in them. I, I loved stories. I was fascinated with stories. So mm -hmm. when the teacher asks us, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I wanted to do something with stories. I wanted to create stories and be in stories. And at that age, the way that I saw you could do that was, well, I could be writing these books that I love having read to me and I love reading myself. So I wanted to be an author. That was my childhood dream. And like many childhood dreams at that age, it's humid. Oh, you want to be an astronaut? That's amazing. Oh, you want to be a rally driver? That's awesome. You want to be an author? That's great. But eventually, you get to the age where the attitude shifts mm -hmm. a little bit. And in particular for creative dreams like mine, writing books and being an author, someone will say to you this very particular phrase. And I ask my, my students at my seminars that I run if they've ever heard a similar similar phrase or this exact phrase and, and usually about a third of the room will stick their hands up and the phrase is this okay but what are you going to do for a real job <laughs> what are you going to do to earn money yeah so like many others i heard this phrase uh i was still very young and at that age you're you're very not manipulatable that's impressionable. maybe a bit impressionable yeah, yeah. um you kind of you take things as they stand if your parents or teachers say something to Absolutely, you. Absolutely, yeah. So here I'm being told that apparently being an author isn't a real job. So <laughs> I take that dream I have, I scrunch it up, and I toss it away. And that's where it stayed for a long time. And I don't actually regret the journey that, that ultimately took me on. As I went through school, I started to get an interest in psychology. I went away to university, got my degree in psychology. And now the work that I do, I bring a lot of psychology into it. And I love psychology. I find it fascinating. I, I'll read psychology for pleasure. I'll study it for pleasure. 
Psychology is great, but here's the thing. It's not my burning dream mm. to be a psychologist. Being mm. a psychologist is good, but it's not good enough. And I think a lot of us in life, we settle for good, but not good enough. There's that childhood dream. There's that burning enthusiasm, that flame within us. And rather than pursue that, pursue what we're, we really, really want, we kind of just settle for something that's maybe sort of close-ish. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of the, the journey of, of my education was for a while I, I lost sight of this dream. And I learned some useful stuff along the way and things that ultimately complement it now. Yeah. But what I really had to do when I was in my 20s and um, it was around about my time at university that I started to reconnect with being an author. But particularly after I left, I really, really engaged and focused on it. And I realized that ultimately life is too short to put off your dreams. If you have mm. something that you want to do, you have to go out there and make it happen. And I think a lot of us can find out what we really want to do by going back to that young age before, you know, I said we were impressionable, but actually before we've been impressed upon, before mm -hmm. we've had all of these beliefs and perspectives nurtured in us or forced upon us, going right back to, there's this word authentic that's thrown around a lot nowadays and it's slightly yeah. overused. I, I think it's a really important concept, but it gets a little bit overused nowadays. But at that age, you are your most authentic. You are most in touch with yourself and who you are and what you want. And I think we can all benefit from going back to that age and just reflecting upon, well, what was it that we wanted at that age? What fascinated us? What sparked our curiosity and our enthusiasm? And can we bring some of that into where we are now as more mature and more insightful adults? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, why, do, why is it that you think that some people settle for less than they're capable of? Because they don't think about it. It just it just happens. And people allow it to happen. And I don't say that to be disrespectful or anything. No, not it's all, just yeah. if you don't have intention about things in your life, mm -hmm. about everything in your life, mm -hmm. it will just happen to you. So if you don't have intention about your health, health will just happen to you. Mm -hmm. Usually poor health because you're not being intentional about your health. If you're mm -hmm. not being intentional about the career that you want, well, you're just fall into the first job that pays the bills and you'll stay there. If you're not intentional about your relationships, you'll stick with the first person who doesn't kick you out of bed and you'll just stick with them. Yeah. You're not being yeah. intentional about what you want for your life and working towards making it happen. So I think that's why it happens for a lot of people is they just, they lose sight of the bigger picture somewhere along the way and they get caught up in the small details and they get so caught up in the small details, they don't start to think of, well, are these the details that I really want to be focusing on in the first place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I would say for, you know, a, a large chunk of my life, I was involved in the micro as opposed to the macro. Mm -hmm. But it's only when you start looking at the big picture and then thinking about questions like you know um what's my purpose on this planet why was i put here and what you know what, what's what, what is my intended goal or you know how do i want to be remembered when i am no longer here like those types of questions really force you to look way bigger than just day-to-day -day getting through life yeah or surviving yeah it's interesting
So let's continue with the the journey to where you are today. I mean, I, I know that there was um, a few events or catalysts that you know put you on the the path. So maybe tell us a bit about that as well. Sure. So as a little bit of a preframe, I won't go into too much detail. But what I will say is, throughout my teenage years and young adulthoods, there was this lack of alignment mm -hmm. in myself and i think a very small part of that is that experience i just told you about of wanting to be something and somebody told me i couldn't do it and so i took that childhood dream scrunched up and threw it away and i think i did that with lots of different aspects of myself throughout my younger years and going into my teenage years uh with a variety of different life events, a, a big sort of catalyst for me was my parents got divorced when I was very young, got divorced when I was four. And so I kind of had this warped perception of relationships as a result. And ultimately, I think we we're talking about maturity earlier. Uh, I remember reading somewhere uh, a couple months ago, and it made a lot of sense to me that before the age of, I think it's about eight, children can't see beyond themselves so anything that happens in the world cause and effect they all link with themselves so in some respects young children are very self-centered they can't kind of see beyond themselves and this made a lot of sense to me looking back because when my parents got divorced because i couldn't see beyond myself i think there was a deep part of me that made me think it was my fault oh, that wow. made me think it was something to do with me made me think it was uh something to do with I couldn't be raised by two normal functioning parents. I wasn't good enough to be raised in a loving, happy family. And that isn't a conscious thing that you take on. It's something that sinks very deep to a part of you. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this lack of alignment that I experienced later on came from that, of not being able to separate my parents' divorce with my sense of self. Jeez, okay. So going through my teenage years, there was just this lack of alignment with everything. There was a there was a lack of confidence and belief in myself. There was a lack of focus and vision for what I wanted to do. There was a, a lack of connection and fulfillment in my interactions and my relationships. Quite subtle at times, but always there. Just subtle enough so you can push it away and ignore it and function, but just unsubtle enough that it gives you some problems and some challenges. <laughs> And I think what attracted me to psychology, I think what attracts a lot of people to psychology is they're there to try and fix their own shit, basically. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're, absolutely. There to, they're there to diagnose themselves first and then help yeah. other people. And I think that's why psychology called out to me was like, hey, maybe there's, there's something about this where I can find some answers okay. for myself. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of my teenage years, my, my early adulthood, dealing with this lack of alignment in myself and everything kind of switched for me and changed me just towards the end of university i was telling you about my my degree earlier mm -hmm. so it's actually uh it's just past four years um it's almost four years since my my graduation date it would have been last week but a little bit before that in may of 2015 i had just finished my final exams I'd done all the last bits of coursework, all the last assignments, and I was 22, and I had this this cockiness and eagerness to to go out there and 
seized the world. I had plans for a business that I wanted to start with a friend. Uh, I wanted to go and make something of this psychology degree, get some more qualifications. I wanted to write some books. I'd been kind of dabbling with writing in university. I wanted to go out and pursue that more. So I'm there with all these, these dreams and ambitions for myself. And I'll never forget the day. It was the, the 27th of May, a Wednesday. And I'd gone out in the morning, do some shopping, run some chores. And I come back into the flat that I'm living in at the time. I open the door and there before me on the ground is an envelope. So I bend down and pick up the envelope. And I see on the front, it's the very distinct scribbly scrawly handwriting of my dad. Now, bearing in mind the time of year this is and what's just happened, I know what's in this envelope. It's going to be a congratulations card. If I'm lucky, maybe even a little bit of money as a reward for finishing my exams. <laughs> so I take this into my bedroom and I tear open the flap and I pull out the envelope, not a card, but a letter. So I open up this letter and in this letter, dad tells me the news. A previous Christmas, he had gone into hostel for some routine scans on his heart. And the doctors had a look and they said, your heart's fine. There's a little bit of age-related decline, but nothing we're particularly worried about. The problem isn't in your heart. It's in your lungs and liver. Huge cancerous growths. And they took a look at these tumors and they said, Mr. McRae, we're very sorry. Based on the spread and severity of these tumors, uh, you've got stage four cancer. Oh, this God. is a terminal diagnosis. Uh, there's nothing we can really do for you medically. And we estimate you've got about six to eight months to live. At this time, dad makes the decision not to tell me. Um, at this point, just about to go into that final semester of university, finishing off all these, these big projects, the final year assignment, these final exams. And he doesn't want that hanging over my head. He doesn't want it to be distracting me at this key critical point in my education. And I'm so glad that he, he didn't tell me, actually. He, mm -hmm. he kept the secret beautifully. I was completely clueless. Uh, there was even, he came down to visit me in the Easter holidays and he had lost a lot of weight. And I was like, wow, old man, you're, you're doing great. What have you been doing? And he was like, oh, son of i uh, I've just been off the booze and, and watching my food. <laughs> I look back on it now. How naive he had lost so much weight. You don't lose that much weight really? just sticking off the booze. But you know, we believe what we want to believe and we see what we want to see. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't see anything anything in it it was um yeah it was it was odd but he kept it kept secret beautifully um but here i am now in may and i've finished those final bits of coursework and the final assignments and the final exams so dad makes the decisions to tell me now and as i'm reading that letter he's not just broken the secret but it's also broken my heart because mm -hmm. Here I am, so cocky and confident. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do all this. And I'm going to make something of my life. And I'm going to be doing it without my dad. I'm not going to have him there as a mentor, as a guide. I'm not going to have him there to celebrate and enjoy these things with. So at this point, dad's just hit the six-month mark. And according to the doctors, yeah, exactly. he could go at any time. Jeez. So I know that we don't have much time left. And uh, at this point, dad was actually doing relatively well um for folks who are, who are listening and watching who've had a relative or a loved one in this um with this type of situation and illness it's actually quite surprising how little 
obvious external symptoms there can sometimes be and this was the case with dad he'd as i said he'd lost a lot of weight but for all intents and purposes he was a normal functioning person he was looking after himself he was cooking he was cleaning he was still driving you'd look at him and think that everything was fine so we had some time just there at the end of may and, and in june um to have some quality time i actually interviewed him i interviewed him about his life um i've got all sort of recorded actually i've released some of it as a podcast episode on on my own podcast just asking him about his his lessons and his perspective i wanted to sort of have a uh, a memory of his of his wisdom and guidance that I could I could return to at a later date. So we were able to to do that. I wrote him a gratitude letter thanking him for everything that he'd done for me. So we made the most of that time. Certainly at the at the beginning of you know the the cat being out of the bag. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said earlier, it might be obvious there's or there's not obvious that there's any external symptoms. But very quickly that can change. And very quickly, the scales can shift. And this is certainly what happens with dad towards the end of June. Uh, his health deteriorated very quickly. In the end, he was too ill to travel to my graduation. He was taken in hospital. He spent a couple of weeks there. And uh, all the doctors could really do was pain relief. There's there's nothing much more that they can do at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, then he was moved from hospital into hospice. And it was there in hospice on... Friday the 24th of July, um, just coming up to the, the four-year anniversary just now that dad passed away. And I was there with him on that day, actually. I got back up to Aberdeen and I arrived 60 minutes before he passed. And dad was still lucid at this point and I had the opportunity to have a final conversation with him. And I just said that I was grateful. I was proud to be his son wow. and that I loved him. And I got to be there with him and I was holding his hand as he took his last breaths and I got to say goodbye when when he went. And I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity. I'm grateful for the time. I'm grateful how it all worked out. And I, I got to be with, there with him at the end. And I remember sitting there just after the nurse had come in and, and confirmed that he was gone. And I'm sitting there by the bed and I'm holding his hand and I'm looking at my dad. And in that moment, I realize one day that's got to be me. One day it's going to be all of us. All Mm. of us one day are going to have that final day. And when we're there, we're going to look back on our lives and we're going to value our lives, aren't we? We're going to say, you know, however many years I had on earth, did I make the most of those years? Was I the person I wanted to be? Did I do the things I wanted to do? Did my life have some kind of impact or meaning for other people? And so there I am sitting in the hospice room and, I'm looking at dad and even though it's not me on the deathbed that day, I start asking myself those same questions and I start evaluating my life in that same way. And as I look back and I start asking myself these questions, I keep on coming up with the same answer. No, I'm not happy with the life that I'm living. I'm not happy with the person that I'm being. I'm not happy with the things I'm doing. I've been on the earth for 22 years and I don't feel that I've had any impact for anyone i don't feel i've made a difference in anyone's lives and as i'm coming up against these uncomfortable answers i also recognize i've got a choice if i'm not happy with the way that life has been going so far i don't have to let that story keep on repeating itself Mm. i don't have to keep on living my life in the same way Mm. if i want to be someone different and do something different and live a different type of life 
I can make that happen. I also recognize as I'm sitting there that I've just come to the end of a chapter. It's the chapter of my life of my education. Mm-hmm. It's the chapter of my life that had my dad in it. And I realize that as soon as I walk out that room, a new chapter begins. And on those pages, nothing has been written yet. Mm. The pages are blank and I can choose what goes in that next chapter. I can choose what story I'm going to write for myself. So I sit there in that room and I make a decision and a promise. I make a decision that I'm going to change the way my life is going. I'm going to change who I'm being, what I'm doing, the difference that I'm making to people's lives. And I make a promise, not just to myself that I'm going to do it, but I make a promise to my dad because he had invested so much time and energy and attention and resources, bringing me up, trying to teach me lessons about the world, trying to develop aspects of my character, trying to prepare me to live the best possible life that I could live. And I owed it to him as a parent to go out there and make the most of my life, even though he was no longer there to continue the work that he'd begun. And ultimately I just wanted to live a life that make him proud. Mm -hmm. And that's the promise that I made there in that room. And so I walked out, I took one last look at dad's, said goodbye. And then I started writing that new chapter and everything that's fallen into place since has come as a result of those last 60 minutes with my dad and that decision and that promise. That's, that's really incredible, David. It really is. You, you told that so incredibly as well. So and thank you for sharing that. Wow. To, so, I mean, to try and take something, I, I think it's brilliant that you took something positive from a horrible situation, but I mean, looking back at say the the four years um in what way do you think your life would be different had you your father not have passed oh that's that's a great question i've i've never been asked that before and i've i've almost never thought about it i've thought about it a little bit i think i would be living more comfortably perhaps in certain ways but with a lot less satisfaction i think there's certain things that i've done that maybe would have still happened i think Mm -hmm. i think i would have written another book in that time but i don't think it would have been as good as the two books that i've written since dad died you know one of them is about dad's death and the things that i learned so that book literally wouldn't exist yeah um it'd be a much poorer version of that book i think um i think you know the the business that i want to start with this friend that ended up not happening was orientated around this idea of online training and coaching and so a little bit of that was starting to creep in for me already but i don't think i'd be running the seminars that i, I am now doing it alone doing it to the scale that I'm doing it now in a couple of weeks time, I'm going to be doing my first weekend event, two days. It's going to be 16 hours of just me speaking. I don't think <laughs> I would have been doing anything to, to that kind of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in a fantastic relationship just now. I'm, I'm getting married in a couple months time and um, my partner, Carrie, I'd just started kind of sort of dating around about the time that I found all this out about my dad and, um, maybe I'd still be with him 
maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. Um, certainly losing my dad's really kind of connected to me to the importance of relationships and love. And at that time, it was almost all I had left was was Carrie and um, the love that we started to develop there. I don't know if I'd even necessarily be with her and, and getting married in a couple months time. So I think there's elements where I'd be, I'd be comfortable, I'd be kind of going along. I, I think I probably would have settled for an academic job, uh, gone and done a master's and found myself a little research position. That was kind of the path that I was, that I was on towards the end of university, I think, and doing all this little stuff on the side, writing a book and doing coaching and online courses or whatever and maybe be in a sort of okay comfortable relationship but I don't think it'd be with the same intensity and connection that I, I feel with Carrie now so I think in some respects the path that I'm on now was inevitable looking back to what I wanted to do when I was younger and the challenges that I faced and the things that I wanted to do I think I was always meant to be on this path and I was always meant to be a storyteller, write books, um, speak to people, run a podcast. I think that was always kind of in my stars, if you like, but mm -hmm. I don't think it would have happened to the degree that it's happened. And um, I don't think I would be able to make such a difference to people and serve people because I hadn't been through enough pain. I hadn't had that challenge point. I couldn't, I couldn't give people that lived experience because you know losing someone and and watching someone die right in front of you you can't learn that experience there's yeah. there's no other way to truly take on those lessons unless you're there living it feeling it going through the aftermath i wouldn't be able to give people the power of that experience and the power of how transformative that was for me so i think even if i was doing kind of sort of what i'm doing now it wouldn't be to the same level and it wouldn't be to the, the same impact. Yeah. Do you feel like things like that happen for a reason? Yeah. Yeah. I actually think, and this is interesting, I was talking about, you know, stuff being in your flipping stars there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I recognize now that I was destined to lose my dad young. Um, and that might sound a bit woo-woo, but it'll make sense when you sort of hear the logic. So dad had me quite late in life. He was 53. So I think there was a part of me, even as a young child, that anticipated losing my dad before the age of 30. I think there was always something small in the back of my mind, you know, when I, um, you know, I'm not even 30 yet. When I'm 30 and if dad was still here, he'd be 83. Now, by the time you get to 83, there's plenty of people who die naturally before that. So I think I always had this part of me that knew that losing dad was part of my life path and part, part of what I was supposed to experience. Mm -hmm. Now, 22 is maybe younger than it should have been or could have been, um, but it was exactly the right time. Um, it really was. I, I'd, I'd literally <laughs> just finished my degree. I'd literally just finished my final exams when when I found out about in you know, 2015 was, it was such a constellation of events. In, in June, I graduated, I got my degree. In July, I lost my dad. And then in August, um, I started officially 
dating Carrie, my my wife to be. So there was these three big changes that all happened at the same time. And I can see that each of those changes was very important for where I am now. And I think that, yeah, actually losing my dad was supposed to be part of that puzzle and it was supposed to be that lesson. And, you know, I think I was supposed to have those last 60 minutes and dad died exactly when he did because all of these things came into play. I was supposed to arrive there just before he went. I was supposed to have that time. Dad was supposed to die at that point in time to give me what I needed to keep on going and start living the rest of my life the way that I'm capable of and most importantly, start impacting other people's lives yeah. the way that I'm capable of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to sort of imply or suggest that, but that's certainly how it seems mm. or that's how it has you know, ultimately worked out is that almost, you know, that had to happen in order for you to become, you know, your, your, your who you are meant to be. I yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. I know that, um, Brendan Burchard played a big uh, role in, uh, your, your own personal growth. And for anyone that doesn't know, he, I mean, he's one of the biggest names in, um, self-help personal yeah. um personal development in the world so yeah i'd be really interested to hear about that and some of the things you learned from that experience oh yeah absolutely so i'll i'll back up slightly and i'll go just the aftermath of walking out that hospice room and it's um you know it's a very powerful story to tell and it's very easy to kind of make the jump as we've just done of, I lost my dad, it was transformative. And now look at all the amazing things I'm doing and the amazing life I have as a result. There's a big part in the middle of all that. And I would even say I'm actually still in the middle of that. I've, you know, I don't see myself as being at the end of the path by by any means. I, I, I don't feel that I'm at the, the level or the stage that I'm capable of being. I think I'm still very much in the middle of my journey. It's just got a a bit of a nicer gloss to it now than it maybe did sort of two or three years ago. For anyone who's who's watching this or listening to this, I bet that you've made a decision to change in your life. You've made a decision. I'm going to do things different. I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to do different things. I'm going to start interacting and communicating differently with people. Just because you make that decision yeah. doesn't mean anything changes you're still in the same place you're still the same person you're still doing the same job you still have the same people hanging around you change doesn't just happen with a snap of the fingers and there's this very frustrating and challenging period in between making the decision to change and some of the results of that decision actually coming into play and that's what i found for myself over the first sort of six to nine months of of losing dad was i'd had this big existential experience and I wanted to make all these changes I wanted to make a difference in the world and I was still a 22 year old with no real clue about who he wanted to be and what he wanted to do and I was going out there and I was searching for answers and I was reading the books and listening to the podcast not that you shouldn't listen to podcasts by the way they're great um watching the TED talks uh, signing up for webinars all that kind of stuff and I was searching for answers and I, I just wasn't finding things and they just it wasn't clicking and I was still held back by all my own fears and insecurities and frustrations you know some of these things that I was telling you about earlier these younger challenges that I'd had they didn't just 
go away because I lost my dad. They're all still there within me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I spent this period kind of feeling really lost and isolated. And it was as if I'd had this experience almost for nothing. And I, I wanted this experience to mean something. I wanted it to be a catalyst for change in my life. And it didn't look that way. And so in this search, I came across this person called Brendan Bouchards, and he teaches personal development and he also teaches thought leadership. So he teaches a lot of concepts of motivation and high performance and neuroscience. And I was taking lots of information for that for my personal change. But he also teaches thought leadership, which is the idea that your your skills, your knowledge, your experience can be used to help other people who've had similar paths to you in life and similar challenges and obstacles. And both of these things that he was saying were speaking to me. They're helping me to grow and improve as a person, but also think about, well, how can I fulfill that second part of the criteria? When, when I ask that question to myself, what impact and meaning have I had? What impact and meaning is, is serving other people and making a difference in the world. And I wasn't sure exactly how I was supposed to do that. But this guy, Brendan, was speaking to me. He was calling out to some of these questions that I had and calling out to some of these challenges that I was trying to overcome. So dad had left me some money when he passed away. So I had a little bit of a nest egg. So I took $2,000 and I placed it down on going to one of Brendan's seminars over in California called Experts Academy. So I went over there in April of 2016. So this was about nine months after dad had passed. And I remember sitting on that plane. It was it was a 27-hour journey from Glasgow Oof. in Scotland all the way across to San Jose in, in California for all the connections and weights and stuff that I had. So it was, it was this big, long journey. <laughs> and I'm spending a lot of time sitting on planes and sitting in airport terminals. But as I'm on this journey, it was funny. I was... Uh, reading The Alchemist at the time, which is a fantastic book. It's a book all about following your dreams. And and in The Alchemist, the main character is on this, um, it's a shepherd boy and he's on a pilgrimage and he's trying to get to the, the pyramids in Egypt. And along the way, he meets an alchemist who teaches him certain values about finding the treasure within and um, sort of activating the, the kind of the call of the universe and all this sort of really big esoteric ideas. Hmm. And I kind of felt I was on my own little alchemist journey, yeah. like a modern day alchemist, that I was <laughs> pilgrimaging across to, to California and there I was going to find an alchemist and they were going to give me the answers and awaken the treasure within. <laughs> and so I get to Experts Academy and it's it's everything that I hope it could be and more. And I kind of went over there for information for the how-to and you certainly get that it's all the sort of strategies of you know how do you create your idea how do you market it how do you put your idea into the structure for a book or an online course um how do you speak to your audience all those kind of informational strategic sort of things what i didn't anticipate is that the event is just about as much about psychology as it is about all of these strategies and so much of the event was actually about awakening the confidence and belief in yourself as a thought leader, as a messenger, as someone who could help someone. Because ultimately, if you don't believe in your capacity to help people make a difference, it doesn't matter what flipping marketing copy that you've got. Nobody, nobody's yeah. going to be influenced by it. Nobody's going to be changed by it. Yeah. And that was an unexpected 
outcome of the event um but it was arguably just as important even even if not more so important than the actual things i was learning and i remember on the last day in particular brendan does this sort of visualization exercise and you start the visualization by thinking about what you're going to do when you leave experts academy what new things are you going to start doing what you're going to create what people you're going to speak to what what different things are you going to do to, to serve and help make a difference and through this visualization you chart it throughout your entire life and there's all these different sort of moments and you you see all the people who you're going to help and influence and serve and you get to the end of the visualization and you're standing there on this this big plane this big field and there in front of you are all of the people in your life who you've helped and you know they go as far as the eye can see and you walk through this crowd and people coming up to you and they're they're thanking you shaking you by the hand hugging you congratulating you and i'm walking through this cloud and there's all these sort of faceless avatars coming up and i get through the group of people and there out the crowd walks of course my dad and he comes up to me and he shakes me by the hand and he says i'm proud of you son and at that moment i burst into tears mm. um and I burst into tears, not just because I'm seeing my dad, but in that moment, I truly believe in my ability to help people. It awakens something within me. And I cried in that moment, not just because I realized that, not just because I realized I had this ability to to help people. And, and by help people and, and make a difference and, and live my life in a certain way, it wasn't like I didn't believe that before. I'd gone to a high-performing school. I'd I'd got a good degree from a good university, and it wasn't that I didn't believe that I couldn't get a degree and I couldn't get a a status, you know, a prestigious sort of job that I couldn't get a decent salary that I couldn't settle down with a family. And uh, it wasn't that I didn't believe that I couldn't live a a good life. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, I really truly believed that I could make a real difference to people. I can make a real difference to people's lives. And I cried not just because I realized that and I truly connected with it. I cried because I realized I'd always had that ability. Mm. I cried because I recognized right from that little five-year-old who wants to be an author, that five-year-old had the ability right there and then to start becoming a person who could really influence and change people's lives. And up until that point in my life, I'd been squandering that ability. I'd been wasting it. I hadn't been using it to its full potential and as i'm sitting there in this hallway and there's there's tears falling down my face i realize i'm supposed to be a speaker that's my destiny and that wasn't what i'd anticipated going across to experts academy for but i'm sitting there in that room and there's tears falling down my face and i couldn't believe how much that event had influenced me so emotionally and rawly to the the point of crying my eyes out i didn't realize until that point how much power standing up on stage and speaking can have and that sounds really silly now that i think about martin luther king and i have a dream of course standing Mm. up on a stage and just speaking is far more than just speaking 
there's real power in having a stage and a platform to address people and influence them and inspire them. And I realized that one day I wanted someone to sit in an audience and I wanted them to be inspired and moved by what I was saying in the same way that what Brendan said had inspired and moved me. I realized that was what I was supposed to do. That was my power. That was my potential. I was supposed to be a speaker and my whole life had been setting me up to make that happen. And I came back from Experts Academy and I had an idea for a book. I wrote it, the last 60 minutes, the story of losing my dad and the lessons that I learned. Uh, that came out in January of 2017. Um, I had messages from readers in the States, Belgium, Australia. I was on BBC Radio talking about the book. It hit number one on Amazon in the death and grief category. I started running my own seminars and I ran my first full day event. I think it was, what was October? So it was about four months after um, Experts Academy. I've written another book since then. As I said a little bit earlier, I'm about to do my first multi-day seminar, my first two-day seminar. And what I really want to build that up into is becoming my own version of Experts Academy where I bring people together for that deep, immersive experience. Mm -hmm. And I hope to be able to inspire and move people the same way that I was inspired to move that day in, in California. And that was really a spark and catalyst for really finding out what I was supposed to do and how I was going to make this difference in mm. life. And it really gave me the confidence and belief in myself to go out there and start writing the books and running the events and, and everything else that I've done since. That's amazing. It really is. What do you think are maybe some of the tools or the techniques that people can use in order to uncover that in themselves? You know, essentially taking a piece of coal and turning it into a diamond, I guess. <laughs> that process, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, that's where you get into some deep alchemy. Uh, <laughs> read The Alchemist for, for that kind of stuff. Uh, I think... I think nowadays we're always looking for the, the hack, the secret source, the yeah. the magic strategy to do something, and <laughs> life just isn't like that. It's it's never one thing. It's a constellation of things, and it's a consistency of things. And I think you've always got to be learning. Um, so what people are doing right now, listening to this, is the right thing to do. They're broadening their knowledge. They're listening to new perspectives. They're acquiring different information, different life stories, different experiences, all of that adds up. So your podcasts, your books, your your videos, all that stuff is good. Uh, I think there's, there's real power in going to deep immersive experiences. A seminar was an example of that. For other people, that might be a meditation retreat. For other people, that might be an ayahuasca experience. Mm. There's, there's lots of different ways to have that deep immersive experience. That might be going traveling for, for six months. I think putting yourself in a different environment for an extended period of time is a very powerful influence. You're going to come out the other side of that and there's no way you're not going to be a different person. You yeah. can't go to another country for six months. You can't take plant medicine. You can't meditate for 10 days and not be a different person at the end of that. It's just, it's 
physically impossible. <laughs> Something is going to change when you put yourself into that situation. Running a marathon, climbing a mountain, I'm just, I'm, I'm starting to spitball now, but you get the idea of, of doing something dramatically different for an extended period of time will change you and awaken things within you that you, you didn't know was possible. Uh, for smaller, more consistent practices, meditation. Mm-hmm. Meditation is amazing. Uh, I meditate first thing every morning for 20 minutes. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be a long period of time. And I find all sorts of things come to me during meditation. Um, creative ideas, inspiration, new thoughts. Um, sometimes meditation isn't so much about training the mind and teaching yourself to not think negatively and, and think positively. Sometimes there's incredible power in just sitting there in silence for 20 minutes and not doing anything else. It just gives your mind time to work and it gives whatever is deep inside you, your yourself, your consciousness, your soul to bring stuff up for you and speak to you and say, here, pay attention to this because you've been ignoring it recently. You've been so stuck in those little details that we're talking about earlier. Get back to the big picture stuff. Get back to what's truly inside of you. So meditation, I would say, is a a big one as well. Uh, I had a I had a student ask me at my seminar a couple of days ago and they were asking me, they asked me a very sort of similar question of of kind of when my change happened and when the shift happened. And I, I said, there are these big kind of landmark points and experiences that, yeah, absolutely, I can, I can point to as huge influences. But I think I have a small revelation or awakening every three months or so. Like things just come to you, you automatically mature and grow and develop as a person and when you're doing all these things consistently there's not necessarily one particular thing you can point to as the thing that made it happen so my my insight for this particular video that i did or this particular event that i ran was that my gratitude journal that did that was it meditation was it going to the gym three times a week was it doing journaling was it speaking to this person was it going to that seminar i don't know but I'm doing all of them and through doing all of them, things seem to be working. So I'm going to keep doing all of them uh, because there seems to be something in there. I think a lot of it just comes down to consistency and that's not a very sexy answer to give, but it's, it's the true answer. If you do anything consistently, things are absolutely going to change. It's impossible for something to stay the same. If you keep on, doing something again and again and again and again and it it won't be the first time you do it It won't be the tenth time you do it It might not even be the hundredth time that you do it but at some point something is going to shift and it might not be any of those one times that you did it it's doing it again and again and again and again yeah that sparks something Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna go for a radical change in direction right now (laughs) (laughs) um What's the one question that nobody ever asks you that you wish that they would? Hmm. Oh, man. (laughs) I love that question. (sighs) 
What's coming up? I've got something coming out of left field. Yeah. And it's not the question that I want it to be. <laughs> which probably means that's the question I should say. Ooh. So the question is, <laughs> do you need help? I think sometimes people look at me. This is very hard to say without sounding egoic, but people sometimes look at me, I think, and think that I've got it all figured out. Um, I've got number one best-selling books. I run all these seminars. Mm -hmm. I'm getting married. And one of the things I hear so often is, wow, David, you're so young. Like you, you've done so much at such a young age. And I look around the audiences of my seminars and, and quite often people are twice the age that, that I am. And they're, they're coming to me for, um, for insight and advice and guidance. And they're, they're, giving me money to fix problems in their life like it's all a bit crazy sometimes when you when you think about it and uh, so i think people sometimes look at me and and maybe think that i've got it all figured out and i've got it clued out and you know there'll be people listening to this this podcast and they'll automatically assume that because i'm on the podcast and they're the ones listening that that kind of somehow puts me in a one-up position and that's not really the case at all you know, the most true part of everything I've just said there is I am still so young. I've only been on the earth for 26 years. I do not have all my shit figured out. I haven't got all my shit figured out in terms of how to write books. I haven't got all figured out in terms of how I can be a good speaker. If anything, the more you go along the path, you realize how much you don't know and how many gaps in your knowledge you do have. Mm -hmm. um, I have a great relationship, but there's lots of things in our relationship where I feel that things aren't as good as I want them to be. I'm not being as good as I should be in the relationship. There's, there's all sorts of things that I feel I can do better in. And um, I'm a very sort of self-sufficient, self-motivating person. And this is my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. It's a great strength because when I set my mind to something, I really want to do it. Like I just do it. I want to write a book. I get done. Um, I want to lose weight. I get it done. I want to start running seminars. I get it done. I just do it. It's yeah. it's it's my greatest strength and it's allowed me to do all the things that I've gone to now. The problem with that is that I sometimes don't trust anyone else apart from myself. And that is, that's a trap that I have. That's conditioning that I have. Uh, earlier, I was talking about the effect of my parents' divorce and how it caused me to view relationships. Yeah. That's all my baggage and my shit from my parents getting divorced is from a very early age, I learned that you can't trust anyone because when you trust someone and you have a relationship with someone, you ultimately get hurt and that love gets affected. Logically now, as I've grown up, I know that's not true, but psychologically and emotionally, there's still an aspect of that there where I don't trust people and I, I don't, ask people for help because there's still a part of me that sees that as, as Weakness. being weak and helpless. Yeah. Um, so the mm. question to go all the way back to <laughs> your question was, David, do you need help? Because if you ask me that question and you come to me rather than making me ask it, I'll probably say yes. Um, and people don't ask me that because they, they think I've got it all 
figured out. And I don't think it's just me who has that problem. I think a lot of us have a problem with asking for help um, and feeling indebted to people or in the service of people or relying on people. And that's still something I'm very much working on. Um, so folks, if you ever yeah. see me out in the streets or anything, ask me if I need a hand because I probably do. Yeah, that's that's just, I find that fascinating. I really do. That's a great question as well. What are the main areas that you think you would want or need help in? I'll give some easy answers and then hmm. I'll give some hard answers. Okay. Easy answers. I'm still a one-man band, so I find myself putting on lots of different roles. I'm I'm the accountant, I'm the technician, I'm the videographer, I'm the email marketer, as well as trying to be the author and the speaker, which is what I really want to be. That's my zone of creative genius. Everything else just facilitates the the zone of creative genius. So that's the easy answer in terms of technical stuff that people can help with um sort of the the deeper answers um i, I sometimes sometimes i connect with people brilliant no that's not the problem well the problem is here's the problem as i was saying earlier I'm a very motivated person. Motivation is not an issue for me. Productivity maybe is, distraction is, but actually if I want to do something, I will do it. Mm -hmm. Maybe not to the best of my abilities every time that I try it, but I will do it. Because I always just see a change that I want to make and I work on it to make it happen. I think that everyone else is like that and they're not. Yeah. Um, lots of people <laughs> really struggle with that aspect of they come along to my seminar and they say there's these things in their life that they want to fix and they want to change. And I can sometimes look at someone and I know they're going to leave that seminar. They're going to buy one of my books, but never read it. They're going to sign up to my email list, but never open an email. They're going to wake up on Monday morning. I usually run seminars on Saturday. They're going to wake up on Monday morning and just keep on doing the exact same shit they've always been doing. And I know I can't help someone who has that mentality. But it frustrates me because I want to help them. Mm -hmm. So something I really struggle with is how do I how do I awaken the motivation within someone who doesn't have motivation the same way that I do, who doesn't just see something, want to change it and do it mm -hmm. how do i help people who know they've got something they want to change but don't actually take that action and have that drive to do it and i know it's just a case of awakening i think this whole thing i think there's a lot of myths about motivation this idea that motivation is a thing that somehow you can come along and watch me speak and i give you motivation or tony robbins gives you motivation or a cup of coffee gives you motivation motivation isn't a thing it can't be given to you. And you also don't lose motivation like it's a thing. It's not a set of car keys. You don't lose motivation. You just lose your connection with what motivates you. I believe that all of us have our own source of motivation within. What the difference is between people is whether they're connected with it and how strongly they're connected they are. So I know that person sitting there 
even actually through virtue of even coming along to the seminar in the first place. I know there's a little bit there uh-huh. that actually got them into that room. If they didn't have it, they wouldn't <laughs> even be in the flipping room. Yeah. There's something within them that can be awakened that will drive them to make that change. My frustration at the moment, one of my big frustrations, is I don't actually know how to make that happen on a consistent basis. Sometimes it happens and sometimes I can create it for people. But sometimes I can't. And I would like someone to help me do that more. Help me sort of reach the people who I think really need to be reached. I think in personal development there can often be this element of the Americans have this amazing expression. I love it. It's called drinking your own Kool-Aid where everyone is in the same sort of little silo. And if you go into a room full of high performers or personal development junkies, they're all going to know what you're talking about and they're all going to buy into the idea of what you're saying to them. But they're not the people who really need the help. They are just a small subset minority who you might call awakened or enlightened or whatever. That's grandiose language. But there's a certain element where they've made that bit of a shift and they're now ready and receptive for the steps that come next. The vast majority of people need all of these principles and they need all this guidance. They're in jobs that they don't like. They're in lifestyles that are unhealthy for them. They're in relationships that they can't stand. They want to make these changes, but they haven't made that same sort of shift, whether you call it awakening, enlightenment, whatever it is, where they're actually ready to do something about it. Mm. And that's the vast majority of people out there is they're just, we we're talking earlier about settling for a life that might be good, but not good enough. Or even worse than good, they've settled for a life that's okay or bad even. They've settled for bad rather than worse. They're the people who need the help and guidance, but equally they're the people who haven't yet awakened that motivation within them to do something about their situation. How would you help those people? Because they're the vast majority. And if you can help the vast majority, think how our world could be different. Think about how we'll interact differently with others. Think how we'll innovate differently. Think how everyone will just be a bit more flipping happy about themselves and about their lives. And I don't know how to reach them. And that frustrates me. Yeah. I don't have any words of wisdom on that, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) But I can see why you would be frustrated by that. Yeah. Yeah. What, What do you feel is your purpose in life? It's really interesting you ask that. If you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would have said I knew my purpose in life. My purpose in life is the word in my heart. I often talk about this, this word in my heart or in in all of us. All of us have a word in our heart, I think. The word in my heart is storyteller. And I think that's true. And anytime I activate being a storyteller, I'm living my purpose. I'm in my zone of genius. I'm in alignment, whatever language you want to put to it. So in that respect, my purpose is to be an author, it's to be a speaker, it's to have a podcast, it's to teach people about personal development, it's to help people start taking their lives seriously, start thinking intentionally about their lives, start thinking about where they want to be at the end of their lives. Those are the kind of answers I would have given to you a year ago. But actually, a year later, I recognize I don't know what my purpose is. Like my real grand big purpose. I know what I'm supposed to do in the path that I'm supposed to take. But I don't know what's on that path. I don't know what's not just at the finish line, but even in the first mile of that path. And I hinted to it a little bit earlier that actually 
the more that I've been on this journey and the more that I've done what I've done and learned what I've learned, the more I've realized how much I haven't learned, how much I haven't yet done. Mm. So I guess there's a little bit of maturity in my answer where a year ago, maybe I was a little bit more cocksure and confident perhaps that this is my life's purpose and this is what I'm going to do. Now I'm actually recognizing that believing that I know my life's purpose at 26 is somewhat arrogant. You shouldn't know what your life's purpose is. You should know what your path is perhaps, and you should know the things that you need to do in the areas that you need to grow and expand into. But how can I possibly have the mentality and consciousness at 26 to know who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do if I flip those digits around at 62? If I know at 26 what I'm supposed to do at 62, that suggests that I'm not going to grow and develop at all in that time because I'm already at that level. And that's preposterous. Mm. If, I, if I don't grow and expand and change in that time, then I'm clearly doing this personal development stuff all wrong. I don't know where I'm going to be in 10 years time, 20 years time at the very end of my life. All that I know is the path that I'm supposed to take. And along that way, answers are going to come and inspiration is going to come. And I certainly have ideas and projects that are further extended into the future places that I want to be, projects that I want to work on, people that I want to meet, um, to influence the type of work that I want to do. That's all part of a, a vision towards the future. But in terms of what is really my purpose, that hasn't been made clear to me yet. I'm not at the, the level of development and awakening, alignment, mm. to know those answers yet. That has to be revealed to me. I mean, do you think it's possible that you would have multiple purposes in your life as opposed to just the one? Yeah, I don't know. I, I have this belief that all of us have a specific role in the world, a specific mission in the world. Okay. And that would in entail a specific purpose. But that is just a belief. Mm -hmm. After all, there's there's no foundational evidence for that belief at all. It's just a story that I've made up in my head. So that's, that's all the belief is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there could be multiple purposes. I would still, I would still stand my stand by my belief that there is one overarching purpose that you can categorize your whole life under. All the things that you do ultimately feed into that purpose. Like, for example, I don't think I'm going to invent the next piece of innovative technology. That's that's not in alignment with my purpose at all. Mm -hmm. I might use the next innovative piece of technology to teach people or to inspire people. That might be part of my purpose. But the actual technology itself, yeah. that's not my thing. That's not my role in the world. That's not my mission. And I certainly shouldn't try to invent the next iPhone or the next space shuttle or, or whatever it's going to be. Um so I might have one overarching purpose, which I believe is along the the path of teaching and inspiration and making a difference to people's lives on a on a psychological level. But how that actually manifests and the different modes and mediums through which I do that um, are still unclear to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. What are some of your core beliefs, David? That would be one of them, that we all have a very specific role and mission in the world. 
and we have our place in the world and we'll never feel truly in alignment until we're in that place because we'll always be out of place, out of alignment. That's one of my core beliefs. My, or another one of my core beliefs, I don't have to put limiting numbers onto them. Um, another one of my core beliefs I think humans are good and that can be something that's difficult to believe nowadays um, <laughs> things are quite divisive and conflict filled at the moment and the, there's a lot of doom and gloom about what's happening in the world and are we moving backwards and are we moving into this um, this dystopia or this state of the world that's um, that's not so good and I don't believe that's true. I'm I'm optimistic about the future and, and again, perhaps with some evidence that suggests otherwise, but it always seems to me that humans have found a way and ultimately the goodness in humans always wins out, even when there's a lot of evil or corruption or the selfish aspects of ourselves or the, the conflicted part of ourselves come into play. If you look through history, there's this constant narrative of struggle and resolution, struggle and resolution, struggle and resolution. And after every struggle, the resolution makes things a little bit better. Another struggle comes up and then things are a little bit better. And what I see in the, the world right now is we're in a struggle period. Mm -hmm. But I think there's going to be a resolution where things are a little bit better. Now, I'm not saying that we aren't going to lose some things along the way and there aren't going to be sacrifices and there aren't going to be regrets about what we've been doing over the last couple of decades. I think there's going to be some scars and some damage from it, but there always is when you have a struggle. There always are scars and damages, and I think we will lose some things along the way. But I think ultimately, in terms of looking, say, 30 years into the future, I think we'll be glad that the 2010s happened i think i think this decade um excuse the language is really about waking us the fuck up yeah i think us as humans really <laughs> need to wake the fuck up because we have been sleeping we've been yeah. going through the motions and we've been ignoring all of these really key problems in our world in lots of different domains and i think some of what's happening at the moment is sort of the the wider universal core if you like saying Humanity, wake the fuck yeah, up yeah. and do something about this. <laughs> uh, so that's another one of my core beliefs that humans are inherently good and inherently we we do kind of sort things out and make things better. We just sometimes get in our own way of, of doing it. I just need to jump in at this point then and we'll, we'll come back to the core beliefs. But what do you think it is that makes good people do bad stuff? Hmm. there's some obvious reasons kind of at the top of the the psychological ladder uh -huh. um because people tell you to do it um <laughs> because it serves your own needs at the time yeah um because you weren't aware because you turn a blind eye uh but i feel i feel there are all answers that people have given before and they're all answers at this level What's the fundamental reason behind why humanity continues to do 
bad things throughout history because we haven't bloody changed have we no. we've always done this stuff we've yeah. we've always we've always overreached ourselves and mm -hmm. we've always messed things up and we've always created conflict for no good reason and it hasn't been bad people who have done that the vast majority of the time it's been um people in between the saints and and the devils they're they're really sort of the the guiding forces of humanity's narrative um why do, why do good people do bad things possibly this is just coming to be now and the explanation might not be as concise as i want it to be i think when people are out of alignment with themselves they don't do things that are in alignment with their true nature and i know that sounds like a bit of a sort of self-answering answer but I think it goes back to some of the themes that we've been talking about throughout this interview of intentionality and knowing who you are and what you're really what you're really supposed to do. If you have someone who is very clear on who they are and what they stand for and what they do and what they're working towards and what they believe in, that type of person doesn't make catastrophic mistakes and do bad stuff. They'll slip up from time to time and they won't be perfect certainly but generally they're going to be moving forward in a very progressive way but if you have someone who doesn't have that alignment which i think is the majority of the population not just right now but throughout history where they aren't that clear on who they are what they stand for what they're supposed to do what they believe in what they want to work towards that is when they start doing things that they shouldn't be doing or mm -hmm. not doing things that they should really be doing something about. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's it. I think, as I said, I, I believe, and I don't just believe it. I, I also kind of think it's true. Um, I suppose that is what a belief is. Um, but it's a belief. And I think it's true too, that people are fundamentally good, but if you aren't connected to that good essence of yourself, mm -hmm. then you can't do good and mm. be good you don't have that full sort of capacity within you for all the goodness that you're capable of you're out of alignment with it. there's that lack of connection and so you'll do things that aren't really in alignment with that pure deep essence of who we are as humans yeah yeah it's a difficult one i mean i i, I for myself that's probably one of my core beliefs as well so one of my mentors um in an interview with him, he said that it was an Einstein uh, idea or quote, I believe, that um, in your, what was it, the most important question a person can ask themselves in their lifetime is, do I live in a friendly or hostile universe? Hmm. You know, which ultimately will govern the way that your life is. <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, is the universe a good place? Is there good in people? Or do I live in a hostile universe and people are bad and everything's against me and I'm, you know, destined to be miserable? Yeah, so... Mm -hmm. Good one. Huh. We can go back to your core beliefs. Oh yeah, core <laughs> beliefs. Um, well, I just gave another one of them there, didn't I? That yeah, humans yeah. are intrinsically good. Yeah. Um, I don't know that if this is... Yeah, I guess it is a belief. Um, most of our life is just a story, but we get to choose which story to believe in. Yeah. Um, there's a, a fascinating book called Sapiens by 
uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, it's called A Brief History of Mankind, and that's literally what it is. It goes back from our earliest day as um, our Paleolithic ancestors, um, when there's actually more than one species of human on the planet, which is really interesting. There's actually six different species of humans, and it sort of explains why Homo sapiens won out when actually we weren't the strongest, toughest, fastest, fittest, or smartest of, of those human species, which is quite interesting. And it goes through all of the major kind of landmarks of our history, the agricultural revolution, the cognitive revolution, uh, the Renaissance, economics, politics, nations. It explains all these things. And what you realize at each of these points, as you read in each of these chapters, is that everything is just a story. Writing is just a story. A letter has no intrinsic meaning, but because you and me both believe that letter A means the same thing, it becomes that thing. It's that shared meaning that we hold between us. A nation is just a story. There are no nations mm. on the world. There's just hills and trees and rivers. And we draw all these imaginary lines all over it saying this is a nation and that's another nation. And people fight over this shit. People yeah. fight over an imaginary line drawn across a river. <laughs> Um, it's it's crazy. A nation is just a story. Religion is just a story. That's a bit of a controversial one. Religion, <laughs> all the various religions are stories that have been told to create meaning in the world, to try and create a moral compass. Uh, money is just a story. I've got <laughs> a £10 note in my wallet just right now. If I give you that £10 note, you and me both believe that it holds value, but it doesn't. It's just a piece of paper. Yeah. If I give you that piece of paper that's over there and I say, here you go, this is worth £10, you'll tell me where to go. You'll say, no, that's not worth anything. It's just a piece of paper. But that piece of paper means something apparently because yeah. we both believe the same story about it. Yeah. Now, when I, say, when I say story, and particularly with the example of religion, people might say, well, how, how dare you? Of course, a, a nation is more than just a story. Of course, religion is more than just a story. Of course, money is more than just a story. Now, it is just a story, but just because it's a story doesn't mean it's not true. And that's the really key thing to, to take away is because we've said that imaginary line drawn across a river separates two nations, it's true. Mm. Just because we've said that if you believe in this God and you do these things, you're going to heaven, then it's true. Just because we've said that this piece of paper represents 10 pounds and this is the value that holds in the real world, it's true. Stories are our truth mm -hmm. so in our lives everything is just a story but we get to choose what those stories are going to be because if we choose what stories we're going to listen to that becomes our truth so you can have a belief about yourself that i'm not a confident person or i'm a confident person mm -hmm. either way the story is true you can have this belief about yourself that i'm not motivated or i am motivated either way the story is true so you've got to be really careful about what you choose to believe in life because your stories are your truth. Mm -hmm. If you look at, uh, I've been studying happiness a lot these past couple of years. I've got really interested in positive psychology, which is the scientific study of, of happiness and flourishing. And there's various little things that you can point to that um, are shown to boost happiness and to increase happiness. But what I'm taking away more and more from the research and the fundamental difference between happy people and unhappy people is not what they is not necessarily what they do it's not their circumstances in life it's not that they're born with magic genes or not the main difference is happy people 
and unhappy people think differently. That's the fundamental difference between the two. And when it comes to thinking differently, thoughts are just a story that you create on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. So happy people have just created this story that they're a happy person. Unhappy people have just created a story that they're an unhappy person. And again, people might take a little bit of offense to that and say, well, some of depression, they're not just telling themselves a flipping story. They mm. are depressed. I'm saying, yes, absolutely. They are depressed because their story has become their truth. Just as mm. a happy person has created this story of happiness that has become their truth. Mm -hmm. Now you can do things that edit and erase and refine and modify your stories somewhat in real life. But ultimately what all these things are going to do, for example, when a depressed person takes antidepressants, there is a chemical change that happens in their brain and that does give them a different physiological sensation. With that different physiological sensation, you then create a new story, attach the physiological sensation. You're saying, wow, I feel a little bit better. These antidepressants are working. I'm not so depressed anymore. So there is something that's happened, a real objective scientific thing that absolutely you can measure. But then you've created this story attached to it and it's that story that starts to take on hold and it's that story that starts to create the truth. So all these things in life, these big concepts, we talk about happiness, purpose, love, they're all just stories. Mm -hmm. But just because they're stories doesn't mean they're not true. They are very, very true. And that's why we've got to be very careful about the stories we choose to believe in and the stories that we choose to write for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, some, that's such a good answer. That's awesome. What one thing would you change about the world uh, if you had the chance? Oh, I could have some fun with this, couldn't I? <laughs> Problems in the world, I'm, I'm sure we could all point to a few. What one thing would I change in the world? I'll change the education system from the grassroots up. Um, funny, when you were talking earlier about big purposes, one of my big visions for some point in the future is to do something within the education system. And I don't fully know what that is. I don't know if that's working at a governmental level and creating a new curriculum. I don't know if that's like building my own school. I kind of have this vision of building um, like Professor Xavier's school for extraordinary children, building a school that's not for extraordinary children. It creates extraordinary children. So I've got yeah. all these sort of little visions of changing the education system, which I think comes from a fundamental realization that if we change things from the grassroots up everything changes if we can cultivate the character of our children better they grow up to be better people and they do better things if we can help children connect with their purpose earlier they go on to do better things and create better things in the world if we teach our children earlier how to interact and connect with others they grow up to be better people and create better communities and better societies. I think that's what needs to be changed. And our education system is one of the only things in our modern world that hasn't changed with the times. Our education system was created about 150 years ago to create workers for factories. Yeah. It was designed to to enable the industrial complex to keep on going. Mm -hmm. So you taught children to uh, work between certain hours. You taught them to Im obey instructions. You taught them to carry out mechanical sequential tasks. Mm -hmm. And that's what our school system still does. Mm -hmm. 
but we don't live in the industrial world anymore. The industrial world is dying out. We're moving into a new creative digital information world. Mm. Our education system needs to be completely different for that. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't really changed. And they do these window dressing changes every couple of years where they call the exam something different and they say, oh, we're going to do this mindfulness program and we're going to teach growth mindset to the kids. And I'll look at the system and I'll say, okay, so where on the children's timetable is mindfulness scheduled in? Just like yeah. you'd schedule in maths, yeah, English, yeah. science. What are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis to cultivate a growth mindset in the children? What do you do differently with them? How do you teach them differently? Do, again, on their timetable, do they have growth mindset training? Just the same as you'd have history and geography. Mm. All of these traditional subjects, I think, are good and really important. But we've got some new stuff that the children need to learn mm -hmm. in order to be able to survive and thrive in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And we're not really giving them that. No. We're still using the same system as we were 150 years ago. Mm. And I think that needs to change. And I think as that starts to change and we start to prepare our children differently, as I said, right at the beginning, you know, young children are amazing. They're authentic, they're untarnished, they're a mm. clean slate mm -hmm. in all senses of the word. Mm. Even if you look neurologically, neurologically, they have a high level of brain plasticity. It means that they can grow new connections between their neurons. It's when their brain is most receptive to learning and growth and development. That's why Mozart was so good. Mozart wasn't born with this amazing hidden genius to play the piano. It was just because he played the piano from three years old and his dad drilled him for hours and hours and hours every single day to play the piano. Mm. And because he was so young and his brain was so receptive to growing new connections, mm -hmm. it was basically like his brain was on steroids and it grew and it grew and it grew. And he became an amazing piano player as a result. Now, I'm not saying that that result, that um, approach is particularly healthy of drilling a three-year-old for hours yeah. and hours a day at the piano when... I imagine Mozart probably didn't want to play the piano. He actually probably wanted to do something else. Yeah. And eventually when he grew up, he realized all he could actually get paid for was being an amazing piano player and going and doing all his, his tours and his concerts and things. Yeah. Mozart probably actually wanted to be a flipping author or something <laughs> yeah. like that. He didn't want to be a piano player, but that was the skill he ended up cultivating. Yeah. Can we use a similar-ish approach where we're cultivating children from a young age to do what they enjoy, to enjoy, to do what they're good at and cultivate that at a young age when they're most receptive so that by the time that they get to 18 years old or, or whatever arbitrary age, you decide that they are now an adult and yeah. they can go into the world. I think 18 might possibly be a bit too young, actually, in today's age. Yeah. Um, I was still a child at 18. I don't know about you, Elliot. I was, Big time. I was blooming daft at 18. <laughs> Um, I, I actually think that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't probably fully start to, I don't like the word necessarily crystallize, but hopefully people get the intended purpose is like to really become a sort of more fully formed adult until I was like 30. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought that was uh, probably the most profound. I was like, oh shit. Yeah. But then I'll probably be different when I'm 50. So yeah. it's, it's <laughs> an ongoing thing. Yeah. Which is why I don't necessarily think you crystallize because I don't think you sort of, you know, cement yourself as like, well, that's me now. I think that you're a constant, you know, evolution yeah. and iteration of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. So even something like that saying, okay, our children are ready to leave school and be a worker and being an adult yeah, at 18. I know. Possibly not. Possibly not. So that's that's what I think needs to change is the education system. When you change things from the grassroots up, then it has a knock-on effect 
wider up the the sort of the pyramid or the funnel, yeah. or however you want to visualize it's, it's it. A, it's absolutely, I'm a hundred percent with you. I do think that it needs, um, you know, major overhaul for sure, in order to equip people with the the world that we are now in. Definitely, this has been an unbelievable conversation, and I will one hundred percent have you uh, back at some stage because honestly, it's just <laughs> it's you know you're a really easy person to speak to, and I love listening to your answers and your perspectives. It's been absolutely brilliant. Um, where can people find you? Um, all over the socials. Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. They're the three main ones. I do have a LinkedIn, but I just I haven't got the hang of LinkedIn. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um. It's still on my sort of future list, but those would be the main three. Uh, David McRae or Theo Life for all of them. Make sure you spell McRae <laughs> right. <gonna> say. <laughs> There's six different spellings of McRae and nobody ever gets the right one. Um, so David McRae or Theo Life, look at the sort of the title of this episode to get the right spelling. <laughs> the MCC uh, version. Yeah, yeah, MCC. <laughs> my, my friends sometimes call me MC Cray. Okay. MC Cray. <laughs> That's a way of remembering it. <laughs> Yeah, the the, oh, wor- the worst really? the worst rapper name in history. <laughs> um, I sometimes also get called DMC, like Run DMC, because oh, nice. I'm David yeah. McRae, DMC, yeah, yeah. which is a slightly better rapper name. <laughs> <It's> actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, I'm at David McRae, Author Your Life, or just Author Your Life is Instagram is just at Author Your Life. Uh, my website is authorlife.org, and on all of those you'll find. The various bits of information um, about my books, about my events, about my podcast as well. So for any of the things you want them to go a little bit deeper into and find out a little bit more about, they're all over them. Awesome. And don't, don't forget, if you ever see David, always remember to ask. Yeah. Do you need, do you need <laughs> ask help? Ask me if I need some help, please. <laughs> do you need help, David? I'm crying out for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great stuff. David, thank you so much. Thank you, Elliot. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>